0: Brooklyn was, you know, I've said recently, and I will say until I die, you know, I really wouldn't give that upbringing up for anything. It was, you know, it was not a lap of luxury by any stretch. And I grew up initially my first, you know, few years of my life in Brownsville, Brooklyn, which, you know, is one of those places that is still considered one of the toughest places in the world. You know, there were places in the city that I remember Alphabet City in Manhattan used to be like, you couldn't go there after five o'clock at night. I'm like, you'd get killed in the drug deals. Now Alphabet City is like one of the most in-style chic places in the city. Brownsville is still Brownsville. Nobody goes to Brownsville unless you have to live in Brownsville. So, you now that's where I started up my life getting beaten up every day.
1: Hi, Sebastian Alvarado with the Coffee and Football Podcast, a long-form interview where I sit with some of the most influential profiles in the game to learn about their lives and career journeys. Today's guest is Joe Tacopina, one of the top criminal defense attorneys in the country. He's been called the Rocky Balboa of criminal defense law, the devil's advocate, and the war machine. He's been involved in the most high-profile cases that you can imagine. Clients have included the NYPD, Alex Rodriguez, Jay-Z, Victoria Gotti, Lilo Brancado, and many others. He combines his New York City law practice with his huge passion, Italian football. Since 2011 he's been in key ownership and top executive positions with teams including AS Roma, Bologna and his latest venture as the owner and president of Venezia Football Club. A team he bought in 2015 while in the 4th division. After consecutive promotions they're now in Serie B. And Tacopina, who's relentless, won't stop until he's reached Serie A and won the Scudetto. It's a fascinating life and career story, so I've divided it into two episodes. So without further ado, here's part one with Joe Tacopino. It's an honor to have you here sharing your story. So Joe, welcome to Coffee and Football.
0: Thanks, Sebastian. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. And the first question I always got to ask, since the theme is coffee and football, is how do you like your coffee?
0: It's pretty good. The coffee's pretty good. I was pleasantly surprised when I saw it coming out of a glass pot. reminded me of, like, you know, my mom's thing in the 80s that, you know, Norelco no pot. But no, it's actually, you make some good coffee. Thank you.
1: That sounds good. It's, it's pretty strong. It's caffeinated.
0: I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. a bit jittery, so.
1: Exactly. Uh, we're here in New York City today, and uh, you just wrapped up an amazing season, gaining promotion to to Serie B. So obviously, congratulations.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Sebastian. Yeah, it, it was a magical year. We've obviously already won our championship, and then we've won the Copa Italia um, in Liga Pro. and And, you know, proud to be the first team in 57 years to go directly from Serie D to Serie B in two seasons. You know, so it's been really a special, special few months. I mean, it's been a great ride so far. Long way to go, though.
1: Yeah, and you, you did go out and say, you know, here here is what we're going to do. We we will get to uh, and <laughs> then we will get to A. But, you know, if you think back, let's say a year, could you ever have imagined to, to be in this position where you are today?
0: Well, I mean, two things. One, yes. I mean, that's like, maybe my, my strength or weakness is that I, I could have, not only could I imagine, I envisioned and I knew it. I'm very ambitious and I have very strong level of confidence and, and belief in our project and what we're going to be doing. But you know, as far as going from D to B in two direct seasons, when I said it at the press conference initially in November of 2015 to 350 fans and journalists throughout the world, one thing that I, I certainly didn't understand or appreciate would, was the fact that no team had done that in 57 years. I didn't know that when I said it. I probably wouldn't have said it. Or some people think I probably still would have said it, but you know, that was a, a daunting task. I didn't realize that, but now I understand why because. When you're playing in these lower leagues, when you have 60 teams and Serie D, for instance, I would not recommend that to anyone who has uh, any heart conditions or whatnot because Serie D is, you, you know, you're in the, the bowels of Italian soccer there where there's no television, no media, therefore no video. And when there's no video, strange things can happen. Uh, referees, you know, seem to disregard obvious penalties and things happen there. Half the field you play on are more like a beach than a, than a soccer field. I mean, it's the conditions are... You know, so that's why it's, it's you know, when we first started in Serie D, I thought we, you know, cakewalking and my sporting director, um, you know, Giorgio Baranetti, who's, who's a legend in Italy, said, you know, it's not that easy because. And I said, well, we're still going to win. And um, he said, OK. And and then once we got through Serie D, which we did, we walked away with the, the division by about 12 points. We wound up in, in Liga Pro, and he said, this is the toughest league in Italy. And I was like, well, I thought Serie D was the toughest league in Italy. He was like, well after a Pro, Serie D is the toughest league, And the reason is is because you have again sixty teams vying for four promotional spots. You have to finish in first place to be promoted. Otherwise you go into this, you know, round robin tournament that consists of twenty seven teams for one position. And and it was really something that that we focused on my command discipline to the organization was we're winning this year. And we built a team to win again this year with players who who, you know, saw the ambition of our project, saw the Potential of our project, you know, we're selling a city that is the most beautiful city in the world, bar none, and one of the most important cities in the world, um, and you know, so it, it's not difficult to get people to be attracted to this project. And then, you know, we put together a team of, of starting line that consisted of players who played either in Serie B or Serie A. Um, so we won, and then, of course, you know, we had one of the most recognizable figures in Italian football history approach us last year and said, "I want to be your coach." And it that's was, uh that's Filippo Pippo P- P- Inzaghi. P- yeah, I mean, he called us, and you know, I really thought it was a candid camera moment at first. I I didn't believe it. You know, it, it was really him. And my sporting director called me and said, you know, he wants to coach us. I'm like, sure he does. So it was. Um, it was really it was a, a a nice sort of verification that our project really was catching some momentum and really catching the attention of the italian football world and the european football world
1: what are some of the things that that inzaghi brought to the table that were things that say that you haven't really experienced before
0: okay well it was clear that when he called and said he wanted to be our coach you know it was a no-brainer for me at the time and quite frankly it's not like he had a massive coaching resume he coached nine months at ac milan was was fired um didn't have a very good run not that anyone has recently in AC Milan um on the bench there but you know it's not like he had a curriculum that that you know and certainly there was no indication that he would know anything about the third division but for me it was a no-brainer I mean as long as he was able to walk and talk he was going to be our coach if he wanted it because he brought us a level of visibility that even is is as visible as our project was even in Serie D we sort of become a bit of a global brand in the fourth division and Zaghi really accelerated that visibility um, for us because of his name and, you know, his following. And it really, again, was another very resoundingly loud statement that, hey, Venezia Football Club is coming, guys. Everyone needs to start paying attention because, you know, we took the coach from AC Milan the year before, and he was our coach. And so he gave us a visibility that we could not have had at all in the third division, which was number one, number two, he's a winner. Um, you know, whether he's a a good coach or not, or he needs to learn a lot more or whatever, those issues were secondary because he's a winner. And, and to me, you know, I attract to winners. I like winners. Um, you know, we, we wanted someone that would bring a winning mentality into that locker room and certainly knows how to do that. What does this
1: time of year now look like for you and, and planning for the next season? And how are you envisioning to approach that?
0: Yeah, we're already at work. I mean, it's amazing. You know, people who are big fans of the game, which I've always been, but you know, when you're outside of it from a ownership or, you know, company perspective, you know, you think the season's over and you get a vacation, you get to relax a little bit and then start next year. This is when, you know, the pedal hits the metal, so to speak. This is the the hardest part of the season for us by far. Um we, you know, we're preparing a budget for next year. We're setting, you know, parameters around are spending from the team standpoint we're evaluating players which ones we're going to bring with us and which ones we're we're going to you know release and, and have to replace um you know so this is the hardest time of the year and by basically by the first week in july we have to have all this um squared away now there's always you know you'll make late and midsummer adjustments to the roster if you need additional help uh, like we did last year but for the most part the core of our roster should be set in a you know really almost a month so it's uh, now's the busy time.
1: How does the decision-making process look like in, in bringing in new players?
0: Sure. So, you know, Giorgio Peronetti, our sporting director who was at Juventus, Roma, Palermo, I mean, some of the, the biggest teams yeah. in Italy. And,
1: yeah, just side note, he, he has been one of the biggest and, and main sporting directors in Italian soccer, yeah. and he was in Napoli when Maradona was
0: there. That's and- yes, right. And, you know, Giorgio started this project with me in the fourth division, which people really thought I was you know, just spinning a tail. I mean, that no one... But when I I met him, I said, listen to me, here's what I'm going to do with Venice. It's a legacy project for you, Giorgio, for me, for all of us. I mean, we have a chance to have the world take notice because we're in Venice. We're not in some small, nondescript southern city or, you know, some city that, that... I mean, all respect to Manchester. People outside of England, outside of the UK, if you say Manchester, they think football. They think Manchester City, Manchester United. You know, people... When you say Venice outside of Italy, everyone knows what Venice means and what it stands for and, you know, what it looks like. And it's something so unique um, that we have. So, you know, Giorgio got excited about it and, you know, we had a good initial meeting and he decided to join me in the project. And, you know, that was that meant a lot because it gave us a lot of credibility from a sporting side. Now, you know, I'd come from two big clubs, so it's not like I had fallen off the moon Say oh, um, you know, like, like so many of these people who come in and some of them are jackals that just come in and, you know, don't have the wherewithal, they, they're president for a year and then they disappear. I mean, there was obviously I had a credibility and a track record and I had just won a championship at Bologna. So as the president and he, you know, accepted that and I think was excited by this project. We started from there. We started building from there. But our structure, even in Serie D, Sebastian has always been that of a Syria organization. organization. Um, we have an org chart we have, uh, you know, department heads. I mean, in Serie D, we had, a, you know, marketing people, we had uh, communications people, we had social media. I mean, that didn't exist anywhere else, and mostly in, even in Liga Pro. But for me, it was important that we, we dressed for the job that we wanted, not the one that we had. And what we want is to be a top-level Serie A club. And to be ready to make that ascent. we have to have the structure in place now. So that's really what we spent the first few years doing. I mean, Giorgio taking care of the sporting side and and the ownership group, and I have a lot of great partners, a lot of them based in, in New York. We gave him the wherewithal from a budgetary standpoint to do that, to put together a great team. But, you know, he had to pick the players. And the way it goes now, you asked me the, the process is, you know, Giorgio will consult with the coach, um, identify players that or needs that we have first and foremost, and then players. And there are, you know, we're right now we're looking for about five or six positions for next year um, to fill. And then we'll identify players who match our culture and our model and our values because that's important. You know, <laughs> you see some teams spending a lot of money and putting in great teams. And, for instance, Parma in January, you know, legendary team, football giants in yeah. Parma. Uh, you know, some of the greatest players in recent history played for them. They, like Venezia, went down and basically restarted last year with us. And we both won our division Serie D. And we wound up in the same category and same group um, in, in LEGA Pro, and we beat them by double-digit points. And in January, they outspent us. I mean, they went to the well big time in January, and they bought a lot of players, a couple players from Syria. A. And that's when we pulled away, surprisingly. It's when we pulled away from them, which doesn't make much sense, but it just goes to show you it's not about just throwing money down on players to get results. I mean, it's a lot about chemistry. It's a lot about having the right mix, the right amount of leaders, and, and that, that's why this team was pretty special. I mean, we had a group that was there for each other, and if anyone didn't particularly fit in, we removed them. Um, but I am, as, as a president, my, I have a very important agenda that includes a culture and values in a society that will go from the first youth team— on the bottom, the nine-year-olds all the way up to the first youth team, the Primavera, to the first team, to the the major league team. And, you know, it's important that we all adhere to those cultures and values, and I won't accept a player that doesn't have them. So Giorgio understands that, and he'll identify the right players um, that fit that mix.
1: We just spoke a little bit offline here that you spend about 50% of your time in New York City and 50% in, in Venice. So take me through a typical day for you whether it's here or in, or in Venice, but let's say during season, a typical day from the moment you get up, do you have any specific routines that you do every day and, yeah. and then from there on?
0: I mean, I try to first thing I do is try and get some exercise in because it's my only chance. Once the day begins, it's over. What kind of exercise do you do? Know, you do? I, I really do mix it up. I mean, I do a bike. I'm a boxer. I box literally sparring, you know, guys who professional boxers, which, you know, sometimes jars the brain a little bit, gets me going pretty quickly. Um, you know, I'll do some resistance training, and when the winter comes around, skiing is my passion. It's my, it's my hobby. It's my passion. I'm a certified instructor. It's something that I really love, and, you know, I joke to people, the reason I went after Venice and the reason we bought Venice is because it's an hour away from Cortina, the nicest <laughs> ski mountain in, in Europe, maybe, you know, but the, the funny part about that is in two years, I've been to Cortina twice. Um, that's how much time we have, so, but no, then, you know, we just get cracking. I mean, they joke, me in Venice, they, I've, I've come to learn that they called me, according to a an article that I read recently, they called me the war machine, which I hadn't heard until I read it. And they say in a way that it, it's just um, sort of synonymous with how hard we push and, you know, we work and we, we grind it. And, you know, when when I'm coming, the weeks I'm coming, people sort of know like, okay, put everything, that's it. Goodbye, family. Goodbye, everyone. And we're, we're working mornings and we're there pretty late. So, you know, it's anything from meetings in the offices, constant organizational meetings and, and I want to be on top of everything from, you know, knowing exactly what we're doing on a, a social media front to our marketing people, um, sporting initiatives. I'm constantly, you know, interfacing with the team and the coach so they see I care and they see I'm there. And then we're building, you know, a stadium. Um, we're in the midst of a stadium project that's a full time job in and of itself. And it's, Is that confirmed now? It's it's absolutely confirmed. I mean, the mayor has gone public and stated it will happen. It's going to be a you know, done and it's approved by the municipality. Uh it really is a prerequisite for me to get into this project. Um as much as I love the city of Venice and excited I am to, you know, restore the, the pride in, in the the fans of Venezia Football Club. Without a new stadium this project is has a very low ceiling. Um and that's because the stadium that it has is the second oldest in Italy and if you count renovations is the oldest by far because i don't think anything i think the seats are there from 1907 still or 1910 when when it was built but it's it's you know very very old and it's not the most practical stadium in the world it's the only stadium in the world you have to get to by boat or swimming but you know there's no cars and it's at the end of the island so it's not centrally located and you know we can't expand on it we can't expand because we'll fall into the water so the stadium project was something that the mayor had promised me would happen if i came um, and, and he's been more than true to his word. He's been a great, great partner for Venezia Football Club, and that's that's the mayor, Sindico Brunaro, who's been really our ally and really an ally for the city. He's he's doing something that's going to make Venice, you know, sort of the top in the world again because the stadium will be, aside from environmentally as friendly as you can have a stadium, it's going to be a state-of-the-art stadium in Venice with a hotel and, and a commercial center that has shops and restaurants that are synergistic to a, a football stadium and, of course, a place for concerts,
1: Will you fully own it? Will the team be the full owner of the of the stadium? Yes, or? there's a
0: structure in place where a fund will will own it initially, um, but the team is the managing partner have all control. And over 15 years, more or less, the team will then assume ownership after paying off the the funding. Um, so, in terms of
1: organizing events and concerts and all of that, right. you can get some some funds through sure. that. as well?
0: I mean, we, you know, it's by the way, it's the same exact model that Juventus used. As a matter of fact, Academia is the company the the project manager that that was involved in the Juventus project and is our project manager as well. It's the same model Juventus used. And yeah, I mean when you think about it, Venice, a city that holds thirty million tours a year, doesn't have a place to have a concert. Yeah. Uh it's mind boggling. I mean there's a lot of money being left on the table there. And, you know, I've already been in touch with the biggest concert operators in the world who are salivating to say, you know, to lock in an exclusive um with that venue. Um, you know, so it's it's something but anyway, that's part of the day, right? So you have Sporting side, you have the business side of the business and then the stadium side, so then you know i 'm constantly what I do differently than than most presidents and the reason I think I was so successful in my past lives in Bologna, where I had an absolute love affair with that city and the fans and vice versa is because I put myself into the community um you know I do what I say i 'm going to do, and you know i I fully appreciate the fact that we as owners of a football team you know it's a private company, but it 's not like owning a tire company or a widget company where you know you, when you own a football team that's named after the city you're part of the community you're really a fiber of the community and if you don't understand that the real owners of that team are the fans and the city then you're already fighting a losing battle to begin with um we view ourselves as custodians yeah we're the the owners the decision makers the ones who will reap the benefits or 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 not depending on how it goes but but the you know my our mentality is that we are here as custodians because Venezia Football Club will be here long after I'm gone. And with that mentality, especially being outsiders, now my parents were born in Italy, so you know I have I have the ability to to, to be Italian as well as American. But at bottom, I'm Italian American, and you know I wanted to make sure that when I went there, Venetians are very proud of their heritage, but they're also very reluctant to open doors, but. I want them to understand that I respect and appreciate their culture and their heritage. I want to understand it completely.
1: Do you have any specific readings you do every morning, any papers that you go through? What do you do to kind of keep yourself up to date?
0: It's more at night. It's uh it's not in the morning I'm, you know, first of all, there's morning people and there's night people. I could be creative and work until four in the morning. Um, my brain just sort of flows. The, on the other end of that, when the alarm goes off, I'm not really that interested in, you know, having conversations with people until well after nine o'clock. My brain really doesn't start functioning until that point. So
1: once you get hit, what, hit, hit, hit a couple of times. Right, right.
0: Once I get hit a couple of times in the head or, you know, I sweat a little bit from the bike or whatever it is. But you know, so my, my clock is a little different. I'll you know it takes me a while to rev up and get into fifth gear, but once I'm in fifth gear I stay there for a long time. Um, so I have long days and most of my catching up, if you will, comes at night after, you know, everything else is done. I'm just lying in bed and I'll read the times, New York times to see, you know, what's happening or what, watch my CNN alerts to see, you know, what ridiculous situation, you know, we're in now because of the president of the United States most recent move or his most recent tweet or whatever it is that causes me to get an alert every single day, um, you know, about, about that situation. So. Um, I'll read the New York Post only because it's it's quick and easy and a, a fun read. uh, The sports sections, and then you know, like some of the other sport blogs and and whatnot. I'll read the Italian press. Um, How's your Italian, by the way? It's good. It's in, I mean, according to my people there, you know, I'll, I'll hold press conferences in full Italian. Um, and it's really about immersion. I mean, you know, I was raised by my grandmother. My parents both worked, and my grandmother didn't speak English. So, but you know, I was a young child then, and then I went, you know, in Brooklyn, New York, I went to, you know. Grammar school and high school and college and didn't utter a word of Italian for twenty years. So I sort of lost it. And then when I came back, there was always a base there. But now I, you know, I did an interview recently with Sky TV. I'm fully in an Italian and it maybe helpful after I've wanted to a glass of wine. I loosen up a little bit and certainly speak a little more fluently. But it's, uh, you no, know, it's not easy. I, I, I don't mind making mistakes and. But, you know, I know when I speak Italian, I, I sound like some of the people here and I hear them speaking. So geez, I guess I guess he's new to the country, you know. So, um, you know, it's uh, I, I and it honestly just depends on my mood and my energy levels. I mean, there are some days I'll do it. I'll speak Italian completely in a meeting and then other days I just don't even want to, you know, even think about it. and I'll speak in English. So but it's clearly the more you're there, the more you use it, the more proficient you become in it. So it's functional at this point.
1: Is there anything you do to keep evolving yourself in, within that role and being the, the leader of the, of the team? Like, Is there anything that you yeah. do to keep evolving?
0: I mean, yeah, I read and study constantly. I mean, you know, look, I've been four years as pres- uh, vice president of AS Roma, one year as president of Bologna, and, you know, two full seasons as president of Venezia. So I've had, you know, I have a, a long run of experience and, and, and whatnot. But, you know, when you think you know it all is when you become dangerous. And that's never going to be my case because I'm constantly looking from, you know, striving to be the best. And no matter what I do, being a trial lawyer here in the United States or being a football president there, or um, you know, it, it's something that you know you're always looking to improve on. And for me, I'm sort of manic about always looking to you know get better and or know more to the point where you know I, I have a relationship I mentioned to you earlier with Real Madrid, yeah, um, and and you know their CEO Jose Angel Sanchez is a friend of mine and. A lot of their operators um, are are people that I, I consider friends. And, I mean, they are the number one sport franchise in the world, bar none, more than the Dallas Cowboys, the New York Yankees. From a profitability standpoint and a revenue standpoint, they're number one. And they do things... As good as you can do. Um, they really have nailed it. They they're they're smart about their approach. They're really they they view themselves as we do in Panacea as a content company, not a football team, but a content company uh, like Disney World does. And they put out content, and you know they create revenues. And their model is phenomenal. And it's a lot of discipline. It's a lot of society first rules. You know, there's no special treatment given to any players, even the best in the world who go there. You know, I mean, there's an example I was told that you know when Beckham signed with real his wife victoria you know was obviously a very famous famous singer celebrity actress whatever she is and um you know beckham up on the contract signing was saying well he wants security for his wife also when she's at the stadium he wants security detail and the ceo handed him a card of the security company that real madrid uses and said give him a call see what they'll charge you and he said well i'd like that built into my contract and they were like there's nobody that gets anything built into a contract. The only difference between your contract and the third goalie's contract is your name and the amount of money we're going to pay you. And that's it. That takes discipline, okay? And, you know, that's the right way to run an organization because you don't start playing favorites to some and not to others. And, you know, it's just – just that's one small example. But, but you know, so I, I – spent time. I've been there twice in, in Madrid, twice in the last three months. Um, and the last time I brought all my managers with me and, you know, we had a summit with them and, you know, they're, they just, they're really, aside from being the best they're they're unbelievably generous with their time. And, you know, we have a very good working relationship and someday I'd love to obviously, you know, repay that in any way, but we have a good relationship going forward and we'll see as we climb the ladder, um, there's things we can do together.
1: Do you have any mentors?
0: Uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of this is just self taught. I'll be honest with you. Especially, I mean, there's a lot of people I look up to. My father, John Lennon. Um, you know, those are those are the two names that jump off the page for me. Um, you know, in the football world, I mean, there are there are greats like Marcello Lippi. Um, you know, someone that I really, really looked up to um, as a coach, as a personality. But I, I can't say I have a mentor per se. To me, a mentor is someone who sort of molds you, and I sort of molded myself because I, you know, just. No one really taught me this. I learned a lot from studying, reading. I, I observe. You know, I have. I, I do much more with my ears than my mouth, at least initially, um, because I listen and, and observe. So, I can't say I have a mentor. Do you have any anybody you would like bounce ideas off of? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the guys at Madrid, you know, <laughs> constantly. And I'm like, listen, if you don't have time to, they're like, no. What's, what's up? What do you have? And you know, it's funny. I mean. You know, I said, what do you think about this? And, you know, they're amazing. I mean, they actually analyzed the Venezia project and said, you know, we have some things that they don't even have. I mean, we have a, a, a tour city that's second to none. And, and there's certain things we can do that even they can't do. Now, of course, on balance, it's very small. But it's, it's interesting because they validated our, our model, which is sort of their model in regards to global fan base. 3% of the fans of Real Madrid, 3% are from Spain. And think about that for a second only 3% of the Real Madrid fans are from Spain and the world. 97% come from the rest of the universe. That's our model. I mean, you know, Venice is a relatively small but glorious city. Um, the pr- province of Venice is still, you know, quarter of a million. So our fan base is a global one. We cater, of course, to the local fans and respect the needs and traditions and cultures. But our our fan base is developing as a global one. We now have an academy in County Cork in Ireland. We have uh, an academy in Shanghai in China. We have partnered up with Met Oval here in the United States, New York, one of the elite soccer academies. We're really spreading our brand quickly, and that's because we we want to get out there and you know this is a different world. You know, Real Madrid built a global brand with a hundred years of brick and mortar. Um, there was no social media, you know, twenty years ago or. 10 years ago, we really even, and, you know, we're in a different place now where you could do things, you know, what would take 50 years before it takes five years now to, to build, you know, your certain brand through the internet and things you can do out there.
1: We'll get more into, into some of those details and, and how you actually go about building the team and building that brand and then spreading the word. But I just want to rewind the tape a little bit and touch on your upbringing. You were born here in New York city and grew up in Brooklyn. How would you describe your upbringing?
0: Um, really a perfect school of hard knocks for my job, really both jobs. I mean, both as a trial lawyer and, and present an Italian football team, which is not for the faint of heart, Sebastian at all, but no Brooklyn was, you know, I, I've said recently and I, I will say it until I die, that I, you know, I really wouldn't give that upbringing up for anything. It was, you know, it's, it was not a lap of luxury by any stretch. And I grew up initially my first, you know, few years of my life in Brownsville, in Brooklyn, which. You know, it's one of those places that is still considered one of the toughest places in the world. You know, there were places in the city that, I remember Alphabet City in Manhattan it used to be like, you couldn't go there after five o'clock at night, I'm like, you'd get killed in the drug deals. Now, Alphabet City is like one of the most in-style, in chic places in the city. Brownsville is still Brownsville. Nobody goes to Brownsville unless you have to live in Brownsville. So, you know, that's where I started up uh, my life getting beaten up every day. And then went. you know, we moved. Sheepshead Bay, which, you know, for for our family was like moving to Sutton Place in Manhattan, like, you know, but again, it was a very lower middle class, blue collar neighborhood. My parents, you know, provided everything I ever needed, but, you know, we were lower middle class and parents were immigrants, so it, you know, it was was really a, it expedited your your, the maturation process, let's put it that way, and it gave me a certain grit and toughness that I wouldn't trade for anything in the world, because I rely on that grit and toughness almost every day. Um, It allows me not to really have any fear of anything or anybody and a sense of mental toughness and physical toughness if need be, um, that I could tap into.
1: What did your parents do for a living?
0: My father was a paper box designer and salesman. Um, you know, I worked for a company out of uh Philadelphia and, you know, we designed design commercial boxes like, you know, Ferrara chocolates or something like that. You know, we design the boxes for them and then go and sell them. Take, you know, I in my summers half the time, you know, my parents weren't really of the ability to send me to these luxurious camps, although they did every, again, they, they provided. But I'd sometimes spend, you know, a month just traveling with my dad every day to Philadelphia or Boston or Rhode Island to see his clients. And, and it was that was like an exciting time for me, but that's what he did. He designed boxes and then went on road shows to try and sell them.
1: How old were you around that time? Uh,
0: 10, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Um, and my mom was uh, a bookkeeper for the New York City Fire Department. So And she really, you know, I give her all the credit in the world because she's the one who instilled the drive in me that was, um, you know, that burns pretty, pretty ferociously. I mean, she sent me um, when I was in fifth grade, all my friends were in the public school. She sent me to poly prep in Brooklyn, which is one of the best prep schools playing in the United States. And I didn't understand what she was doing other than torturing me. I really, like I almost ran away. Um, But, you know, she pulled me from my little comfort zone in my community where you know, there's 4,000 kids in a, in a grade in public school in New York City, and, you know, you could fall between, slip between the cracks very easily there to one of the most structured and prominent, you know, schools in New York um, from fifth grade on. And and what I didn't realize until much later was that the massive financial undertaking that was for them because Polyprep's as expensive as any university in the country. And my parents collectively, you know, made less than $100,000 a year, I mean, well less than a hundred thousand dollars a year and somehow they were able to make that work and you know when i look at it now i don't know what they did i don't know if she robbed a bank or something that she didn't tell me about but somehow she was able to squeeze me through that and that that sort of opened up doors for me and 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 sort of trained me in a way where you know i had that street toughness i mean a grit but i also had this um this you know elite level education which you know was was very important to, to to get out of where i could have gone you know um so it's uh, it's interesting, but that that upbringing was important. I mean, even to the point—a small example—where we lived in Brooklyn was a, a relatively, you know, at times tough area. And and I remember being 11 years old and having a bike and riding it around the blo- block. And every time I rode around the block, on the other side of the block would be four kids popping out of a driveway, knocking me off my bike, you know, kicking me out and around and stuff like that. Riding my bike and then leaving me with the bike, you know, after 10 minutes of torturing me. And they were all older kids. They were 14 years old and they were neighborhood bullies. And I'd come back crying and my knee would be, you know, cut. And I'd say, Ma, I don't want to go around the block anymore. She's like, you keep going around that block until they stop doing it to you. And I was like, I don't want to go, you know. But she, I mean, it was, I thought, again, was, was very cruel and unusual sort of parent, parenting uh, skills. But but I, I understood what she was doing. She eventually, it stopped. I mean, it was took a while and I got knocked off my bike a bunch of times. I mean, maybe a couple summers, but it was something that, you know, allowed me, I understood the life lesson she was trying to teach me and it worked eventually it it did work. Um, so it was, uh, it was something that was, you know, the upbringing was something that I I look back on now and I really appreciate it much more than I did then. Believe me, back then I wish I lived in, you know, in a mansion or, you know, like some of my friends and went to poly prep lived in, in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, where, you know, they have these huge houses in the middle of a, a city street. But, um, you know, again, I had everything I needed, but more importantly, my parents instilled me with some real um, drive and dedication that, uh, you know, was was something I tap on.
1: What would you say is the most important advice they gave you?
0: Be passionate about what you love. Be passionate about it, and if that's what you want to do, do it. But just be passionate about it. Work hard. Be passionate and have integrity when you're doing it. If you just apply those three things—passion, hard work, and of course, integrity. Integrity to me is a you know a non-starter. I mean. I've met too many people in in business, especially in the world of football, that lack integrity. Um, integrity is not even in their vocabulary. But as that as a base minimum requirement, passion and hard work to me was my magic elixir. Um, so that was something that was you know
1: important. How did you get into studying law?
0: Um, I was in college, and um, I was in a debate club, and you now I debate anything i mean you know is the light you know fuchsia or purple and i'd take one side i'd defend it like i was defending someone's life and you know one of my professors said you know you're really good at the debate stuff. you should think about being a trial lawyer
1: let me guess you never took the obvious choice or obvious answer you always took the higher odds side i would imagine
0: yeah i mean nothing was ever came easy but what i did was i read a book that really turned it around for me it's called it was called um Fatal Vision by Jeffrey McGuinness. Okay, it's a true crime story about a, uh, McGuinness was to me a genius when it came to capturing true life events and putting them into a novel that you're almost reading like it was a fiction. Um, and McGuinness wrote this book about this Green Beret Lieutenant Jeffrey McDonald in Fayetteville, North Carolina, whose <clears throat> family one day, and this is again in the the 70s in the hippie era where there was a lot of LSD going on and woke up and his family was living in, in Fort Bragg and you know, North Carolina were, were slaughtered. His wife and his, all his little kids, four of them, I think three or four were, were, just, were murdered. Um, and somehow he survived with cuts and wounds, defensive wounds on his hand. Um, eventually, he was charged with their murder um, and staging the whole thing. And, you know, it was the book was about that process, the investigation and the trial and in one page I was like, This guy's a murderer. He killed his family. How can you kill your family? And then the next page I'd read up like, he's innocent and he's being totally framed. And the next page I changed my mind again. I was like, oh My God, this is fascinating. And then they you know, the trial happened and I was like, Oh my god. You know, what what can be more impactful in life than to be involved in this? That coupled with my desire to, to to do debating, um, was something that I think put it together for me. I said, ah, I, I think I want to be a trial lawyer. So, you know, I Applied to law school. Um, that's after I, you know, I was in college. I was an athlete. I played two sports in college um, and at you know, a fairly high level, but then I decided law school was my, you know, my, my destiny, if you will, and, and away I went. What was your uh,
1: career start? What was your first job after college? Uh,
0: after college, well, <laughs> not too far from here, I worked at the Battery Tunnel collecting tolls, literally. No, I mean, it was in my summer job I was working at the battery tunnel, collecting tolls before they were into this environmental protection shit, you know, and you were worried about fumes. No, in in the in the late 80s, that like wasn't even an issue and they didn't have any vent. You know, if you go in those booths today where people collect tolls, they're like, you know, premium kitchens with air filtration systems and air conditioning back then at 90 degrees on the Tar like sidewalks of the battery tunnel with mufflers blowing in your face, no air whatsoever. I sat there, and I think that's probably why I have mental issues at, at times. But I mean, that's what I did for like three summers in a row, <laughs> collecting tolls like at ninety five degree. I mean, it's just the most brutal job. I was like, you know, smoke inhalation. By the time I left for the day, I was like lost five brain cells every day. But that's what I did that summer. Um, but then you know, I just started everything. I then started doing started gravitating towards my my desire to become a lawyer a trialer and a good one so i i stopped worrying about what kind of job i would take to make money and just started volunteering my services at law firms to watch trial lawyers and for free i did it um and it was the best thing i ever did because i have a sponge-like ability in my brain i think where i I watch i watch and and i i could uh, absorb and that's what i did i watched trials like i was watching television shows and i watched how lawyers acted in courtrooms and mannerisms maneuvers you know you know strategies. And, and that's really what became my job. So and then, of course, I got married when I was in law school. And at the time, I was a prosecutor. I started out as a prosecutor. I was uh, in the Brooklyn District Attorney's office for about four years doing homicide trials and, you know, one after another after another where it became intense. But, you know, uh, my wife and I had, had kids um, and I was civil service working for the government. You know, I wasn't really making enough. And and we were adamant that she stay home and raise the kids, which was the best decision we ever made because, you know, we have five children that are really phenomenal. And that's 100% due to her parenting skills and her, her, her being a really an amazing mother. Um, and because of that, you know, I had to go work at night. And so, you know, I was a, a trial lawyer, I, you know, had a badge. I was a district attorney, and I was trying some of the baddest murder cases in Brooklyn and at night I was checking coats at a coat check place at a, a hall in, in Westport, Connecticut, um called Longshore, which is like some shishi, you know, event hall in Westport, and I was literally a lawyer reading discovery material while I was sitting in a coat room, having people literally throw their furs at me, like, you know, take this boy. And I was like, hey, son of a bitch, <laughs> and I'm like, but but that's what I did you know, and, and believe me, it bought the diapers and the baby food. Uh, for a couple of years so you know by any means necessary and you know i i'm sort of proud of that stuff when at the time i was embarrassed i was embarrassed that i was a lawyer a practicing attorney and i had to chick coats at night you know on the weekends friday saturday night so we could buy diapers and food but when i look back at it now it's like god that you know you don't i don't think you see that as much anymore and i'm i'm sort of proud of that stuff i'm proud of that's helped me sort of become who i am or did you always have that belief that you were gonna become this big time lawyer? Yeah, I mean, I you know again, Sebastian, this is this. I, I hope this doesn't come across as as being arrogant or cocky because I'm not because I'm still I still know where I came from. Okay, most of my good friends are not high powered lawyers, judges, politicians, businessmen. You know, I could dine in those circles and interact when I have to, and I represent enough of those people. But you know, my friends are just normal guys and. Guys, I like to hang out with in Italy. My best friend is a guy who owns a restaurant with me. A police officer. Uh, you know, people who just have normal lives. But I knew once I started down that road as being a lawyer, I I, I envisioned myself in the biggest cases in the country um, as a trial lawyer, and I believed in my skills. I believed there was no one better than me. Um, I had a lot to learn, but but I knew from a trial standpoint, I had instincts that I thought would carry me. And you uh, know, I. I just followed that vision. I refused to accept no for an answer. I refused to not be the best. And I, you know, strived and strived. And, you know, I, I marched on.
1: Was there a moment or, or was there a specific case that was the one that brought you to the next level? I mean, it
0: was definitely gradual. You build and build right. and build. But, you know, after five cases that are in the national media, when you know, in your, you're in your early 30s and you've had five major cases and you've won them, you know, most of was looking at you like, okay, who's this guy? What? You know? But the first one was when I left the district attorney's office, some of the cops that I worked with were indicted and charged with federal crimes in Brooklyn, called a famous case called the Morgue Boys case. It was after the Mollen Commission. The Mollen Commission was a police corruption commission, and they brought an indictment against these cops from the Brooklyn um, 73rd Precinct, and they were called the Morgue Boys. Why? Because what they're basically were accused of doing was robbing drug dealers. Okay, so knowing where drug dens were, robbing the drug dealers of the drugs and the money, going to a, a morgue factory, an old morgue factory where they produce morgues, and divvying up the, the loot, the money, and sometimes the drugs, and that's what, what the allegations were. Um, and the the cooperating witnesses were some dirty cops, you know, who got caught, and a lot of drug dealers. And, you know, it was a case that was all over the national press. I mean, it was certainly front page of New York Times, and that was my first case out of the box as a defense lawyer. Um, and, you know, I didn't have a staff, I didn't have a team, I didn't have a secretary. And I just remember the FBI dropping off like ten boxes in my an office, which I you know I had like a ten hour package a week where you know, I pretend that I had an office, you know you rent the and if they call and there's a mailbox there, but it's not really your office, you know, and I remember them dropping off like ten massive bankers' box of documents. I'm thinking to myself, and now what do I do so i I called them all into my you know banged up car, put them on my them to my basement at home and just spent you know months just reading every document and getting ready for this trial, so it was you know, my first one and it was not one to learn on. I mean, I really have time to, you know, make a few mistakes and, you know, learn for the next one. This was one that every move I made was in the New York times or on national television and whatnot. And, and I won, I won that case. And, you know, with some of the lawyers, it was a really a great experience. And it sort of catapulted me right out of the box to having some, you know, um, notoriety. And then I represented another cop, in another case. And I, you know, the uh, Abdel-Awima case was one of my cases where my guy was acquitted and, I started doing some television stuff. They asked me to comment first on local stuff like New York One or, or Fox 5, and then that became Core TV, and then that became NBC and Fox, and I started hosting shows on MSNBC. I was a fill-in host for them. So all the while, you know, building up cases where I became, you know, lawyers for people who were rich and celebrities like, you know, Jay-Z and Alex Rodriguez and uh, Meek Mill, you know, judges, uh, senators, um, you know, and, and athletes, whatever. And, you know— it seems that they just sort of feed off one another as long as you, you know, you do your job and you act the way you're expected to act and perform the way you're expected to perform. Look, you're not going to win every case. That's anyone who says they won every case they try. He either has avoided every difficult case in the world. or won't try them or is full of shit. Um, but, you know, we work hard. My partner, Chad Siegel, is, you know, we've been together for like Lennon McCartney in a way. We've been together for a long time and we've had phenomenal results. So. Again, that's a lot of work. I mean, the GQ did a eight page feature on me a few years back, and that was pretty pretty cool. The an immigrant's kid from Brooklyn having GQ do a seven page feature on me, in which they called me the hardest working, smoothest talking lawyer going in America, and that was you know it was a proud moment for me and for my parents. I mean, so um, but again, we don't rest on laurels. Not as a trial lawyer, I don't, and certainly you know even on the football side, I don't.
1: Where did the passion for soccer, where did that come from? Is there a specific moment you remember that you said, you know, this is it. I want to get involved.
0: Yeah. um, Yes, I do remember. I mean, the passion came from my Italian upbringing. You know, there was always a a love for AS Roma or the Italian national team certainly was like an event in our house. But the moment that changed it all, and again, this is a nice document, the story in the New York Times when it happened, was... I was doing some work for a prestigious Italian family as a lawyer. I'd be going to Italy a few times a year um, for this, you know, fashion giant who hired me to deal with some matters in America. And I went, you know, whenever I could see a Roma game, I would go to Roma. And I went to the Olympic Stadium for the first time ever and watched a Roma Lazio game, a derby. And I was blown away. I mean, I really got goosebumps. I remember it now like it was yesterday because it was the first time I'd been to the stadium where there were like 60,000 people chanting in unison for two hours where the foundation of the stadium literally felt like it was moving to me. I was like, oh my God, this is, we can't, you don't have this in America. I don't care what sport, baseball, football, there's nothing like this. And I was like captivated by the passion, by the, what it meant that football, there was so much more than just sport, but the fiber of the community. And I said, "I, I don't know how, but I have to get involved in this. But I also noticed there was something that was really disturbing, which was Everything aside from the game and the, the the fan experience and the passion was wrong. The scoreboard was broken. my seat I, I mean I had to put newspaper on the seat i didn't know why everyone was sitting on newspapers, but it was because there was like bird shit on all the seats, and they didn't no one cleans it up before you we shooting games and the seats didn't have any back so you are sitting on this like flat plastic thing where you put a newspaper on and your pants get you know filthy with newspaper and instead of bird crap um. As far as like, you know, I have five kids and I wanted to buy them all jerseys. It was like, you know, I needed a scavenger hunt map to find a place to buy jerseys in Olympic Stadium where they should have been readily available at every turn. Um, you know, go to Yankee Stadium and you can't walk five feet without being able to buy something, food, a shirt, a picture of yourself, you know, buying food you could buy. Um, so it was just it was amazing to me that that existed as far as trying to get a drink or something to eat. You know, at halftime, there's like one concession stand on each side of the stadium. I'm mean, about 15,000 people lined up for one concession stand. So I was at the end of the line. By the time I got close to the front, it was five minutes into the second half. And when I got there, they were out of everything. I was like, man, this sucks as a fan experience, you know. And I could see why Italian fans are starting to sour and going to stadiums. And I I started writing a letter to the Italian Federation. I had a close friend of mine there. I still do, who's one of the executives there. And I started writing letters. To, you know, how are you guys to fix Italian football? Get the school buts work. Make this enjoyable for the fans. Come, eh. and he said to me, Joe, if you send that letter to us, it's going to wind up in the garbage pile. If you want really want to change Italian soccer, go put a group together and buy a team, buy Roma. And I'm a trialer, and I was like, okay, well, I had no idea what that meant or how to do. Um, but I then had an idea in my head, and that's it for me. If you know me, once I get that idea in my head, it's impossible to extract it unless I complete it. Um, and then I was on a mission. And again, not having a clue how to buy, what to buy, how to evaluate. Um, but I did a lot of studying. That was the beginning of my Real Madrid experience. Um, studying, studying. And then, uh, you know, brought in one of the top sports banks in, in the United States, Inner Circle Sports, to um, sort of guide me on how to do this stuff. And you know, we put a group of investors together, and eventually we had some of the you know, wealthiest people in the world um, that were interested in purchasing this franchise. And that was back in 2006 and seven. And that first go around didn't work. There was, it's a long story, but, you know, we had a, we had a contract, but, uh, you know, it just, it didn't close because the sellers really weren't ready to sell because it's a lot, a lot you know, these people who own these teams, how does that happen? Do you pick up the phone and you call these guys and say, Hey, you know, I called around like my friend, the Italian Federation, said, okay. Okay. That's a great idea. I said tomorrow, that's a really great idea. How do I do that? Who do I call? Who do you know? put me in touch with someone who eventually was the lawyer for the ownership of A.S. Roman. I said, I might have a group in America I could put together. Would you be interested in selling? Yeah, well, we could think about it. And we executed a letter and they just sent me, you know, a bunch of documents that was considered the preliminary due diligence. And we started looking at it. Now, the deal didn't go through in 2007, 2008, but I got a call back from the bank that was part of the ownership, was sort of the financial arm of the ownership group and was the guarantor and the 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 debtor also and uh said look we're in control of the process now we the bank and it'll be much more professional streamlined process and if you want to put a group together again you know and i i'd gone through hell in 2007 i spent hundreds of hours hundreds of thousands of dollars and a lot of time and you know it was something where i was considering moving there with my family it was we were looking at houses and then it just went away and it was a it was draining mentally for me and you know what i did at that point was you Know, take a step back and say, okay, wasn't meant to be. You know, dove back into my law practice. And but when I had that opportunity again, I just couldn't, you know, against all sane advice, I just couldn't say no. And away we went and we wound up purchasing As Roma. And I put a group together that was led by Tom DiBenedetto, Benedetto, who was the first president um, of the new group. And I was the vice president that was in 2010, and we closed in 2011. And it was, you know, one of the greatest. You know experiences in my life i mean to the point where you know my father who passed away about five months later um at 94 got to see you know his son is the vice president of the team he grew up idolizing and his the only time i've ever seen him cry in his life is when i, I showed him a newspaper because at the del sport had a, a picture um of the curva suit in rome and if you know what the curva suit mm-hmm. is it's their ultras but they are they're hardcore i mean that's a, a great group and a really tough group, and. Um, They had a big banner that said "Grazie Joe Uno di noi," which basically in huge letters across the curve, which like gave me goosebumps. And here's the here's the picture of it. Tacopina Uno di noi Grazie Joe. Yeah, oh, there you go. Tacopina Uno di noi Grazie Joe. Showed to my father, and I think I don't know, I don't remember seeing him cry before that. Um, So it was something that was really, you know, a pretty amazing experience, and to be appreciated for willing that to happen because I really would have, most people probably would have walked away after the first go around and you know, we pushed and we pushed and it wasn't easy and it got done. And I believe you were, I don't know if the first, but at least one of the first foreign
1: owners. You were the first.
0: Absolutely. And that's something I'm proud of. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I started, it took me four years to get it done, but after four years of trying, we became the first, um, you know, foreign ownership group. And obviously, there was a, a business rationale behind it because course, you know, of course, you know, and you still look is. at this league it that's very is. undervalued. Look, look at the if you look now, the people I've brought into Italian football, um, the the AS Roma group, okay, that I brought in with again Di started, and you know he's not the president any longer. Um, in Bologna, brought in Joey Saputo, okay, the owner of the Montreal Impact. In Palermo, right now there's a pending president or guy who's sitting as president that didn't close yet. But I made an introduction to him to Zamparini. I I pushed and encouraged Eric here to buy Inter. We are on a board together at Global Sports Summit. I you know pushed and encouraged Mike Piazza to buy an Italian team. Um, and Mike and I speak every week. And you know we were in the same league this year and we played each other. We won three to one by the way um, against this team. But uh, you know that's we're still friends. But Mike's great and he's exactly the type of owner you want that brings stability and North American business model that you know has financial stability and responsibility attached to it. Um, he was, you know, he was great. And, uh, and I love that. I love the fact that I've been op- uh, sort of a trailblazer opening doors for other, you know, Americans now with people looking at all these teams. Um, and it's great because it shows me that serious ownership is on the way, you know, not just one or two, three teams, but around the league. And, and that's because the Italian soccer properties are the most undervalued properties in sport bar none AS Rome in 2011, when we closed that deal had an enterprise value of 150 million euros. 150, that's not even Ronaldo's contract. Right. Okay. And yes, the whole team, including Toti, had an enterprise of 150 million. Are you kidding me? They were a Champions League level team. They're in Rome, you know, the, the, the Rome, the one and only Rome, one of the most important cities in the world. And 150 million, when, you know, when you had Manchester, at 1.3 billion. So go tell me that made sense. And sure enough, once that was turned around, Um, You know, the enterprise value of AS Roma now is is around $500 So, you you know, five years, you know, six years, you're talking about a 5X. I mean, five times, that's incredible. Bologna, when we bought it, I mean, we, in one year, we took the team from Syria B to Syria, and we increased the revenues, uh, the enterprise value, by about four times. I mean, it's really, you know, when you're starting so low, look, it's not easy, and you have to put in the right business model, and you have to have the right operators, and you have to have financial discipline. When you start in, in the name of the game in all sports teams is to increase the enterprise value. I mean, go tell me there's some mathematic formula that, that justifies the Los Angeles Clippers selling two years ago for $2 billion. Right. The Los Angeles Clippers, they've never won anything in their lives. I probably never will. They're the second team in Los Angeles. They always will be. They don't own their own arena. They played the Lakers arena at the Staples Center. But yet $2 billion to lose money every year. Go justify that. It's impossible on a... On a on a, you know, a business model, a financial model to justify that, but it's supply and demand. I mean, these teams you could take for a prayer, for, for, for virtually nothing, and really increase the value where you're really increasing your investment dollar, if you do it right. So what are some of those
1: components? So when you step in, what are some of the key components that you come in and implement?
0: There's three, okay? In every healthy league in the world, you have three revenue components. It's the same way, be it's NFL, NHL, Italian soccer, English soccer, It's media revenues, it's game day revenues, that's match day, and it's commercial revenues. It's really that simple. Now, there's a lot of subcomponents in there. Every healthy league in the world has that pie divided up equally by one-third, one-third, one-third. The Italian league then, and to a degree still does, rely almost, you know, in the most unhealthy way on just the media revenues. I'd say almost 80% of the revenues come from media, 10% from game day, 10% from commercial. That's very unhealthy. You need to raise those other two up to equal the media revenues. And, and that's where, you know, the Premier League is there, exactly what Real Madrid's model is, and most of the healthy leagues have that. The Italian leagues don't. And, and the funny part of that is this. The media revenues in Italy are fixed. I mean, you can be a moron without a functioning brain, but if you're the owner of that team, you have your media revenues coming. You don't have to work for them. You have to do anything for them. Okay? They're, you're, they're fixed based on some formula that the federation has put out. It's the other stuff that you have to work for, the game day stuff and the commercial stuff. We have to increase the fan experience, get the tickets sold more and get people in the stadium, get them to buy merch, get them to, you know, get sponsors of legitimate level sponsors to pay as if they were really paying, you know, for a high level team, not some, you know, throwaway, you know, uh, sponsorship, but some, you know, real things, initiatives like, you know, fan engagement and fan clubs or Roma, uh, Roma uh, Real Madrid has a uh, Madrid, Madridista, which is a car that, uh, well, if, millions and millions of members throughout the world, we have an insider pass. You know, that's a, a new revenue stream that, you know, you have to have a certain type of city to to be able to have those things, but we do. Um, and, and so all those revenue components that you have to really, you know, work hard. And, and in Italy, they were just like, what? what it? No, this is a football team. I mean, I remember. I remember them saying my first press conference in Italy was, why are you interested in buying an Italian football team? Is it because you don't like money? Like, And I was like, we'll see. We'll see. And I've made money with my you know my Roma shares when I left. I made significant money with my Bologna shares when I left in one year, and you know my investment in in Venezia is multiple many times in two years so if you do it right, you can make plenty of money, but that's certainly not why I'm in this game um or nor my partners my partners and investors are in it because they wanna They want to do something they can be proud of for the rest of their lives, their families can be proud of, that they could, you know, enjoy. You know, if you're not enjoying it, it doesn't really make much sense anyway. So that's sort of our our model.
1: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did... Please subscribe on iTunes and write a review. I would really appreciate it as we grow this podcast one listener at a time. If you have any feedback or ideas, feel free to send me an email at sebastian at coffeeandfootball.com. You can also link up with me via Twitter. The handle is at CoffeesFootball. Stay tuned for next episode. It will be another amazing one. Thanks again and have a great week.